And good morning, good morning, Ironworks, and all the folks tuning in out there in TV land. Uh, we are going to continue our discussion here uh, in responding to uh, the coronavirus crisis. You might notice as you're uh, as you're as you're kind of deciding what's going on here, or trying to decide what's going on, that there are so many different opinions uh, about what is actually going on. Is there uh, some kind of conspiracy in regard to whether we should open up or not? Is it really that dangerous? What's real? And you can see there are so many different opinions now. And these opinions are not only different opinions across the country. There are different opinions, maybe even in your extended family. Uh, maybe there are different opinions even in your own church. Uh, and you're looking at the same thing and you're wondering, you know, I see it this way. The other person sees this. Uh, it very much depends on how you look at it. We're going to take up that, that topic today by uh, beginning the book of Judges. But before we do that, I thought it would be good to start with an optical puzzle. So uh, I don't know if we showed it beforehand, but we can bring it up now. If you look at this drawing, uh, the question is, what do you see? Uh, you could either see a young socialite woman or you could see her grandma. And it depends on how you look at it. And once you see it one way, it's, very, it's, it's difficult to actually look and see the other way. You actually need help in doing that. So if you're looking at this drawing and you see uh, a young woman <coughs> with her face turned away somewhat, uh, you see she's wearing a choker and kind of an extensive uh, headpiece there. Uh, that's one way to look at it. But if you're looking at this drawing, you might also see the, uh, an old woman, a grandmother there. And if you see that, you see she's looking a little bit towards you. And if you see one, you might have a hard time saying, I don't see the other one. Uh, if you are seeing the young woman, you have to be told, well, you know, her choker is actually the, the mouth of the grandma. And uh, her chin, the side of her face there, is actually the nose of the grandma. And then you can maybe see that grandma is actually looking sideways more towards us where the woman is looking away. If you're looking and you just see the grandma, I say, I see this grandma there. I don't see the woman, the young woman. You have to say in reverse. Well, the grandma's mouth is actually her necklace and the grandma's nose is actually the side of her face or chin. So uh, very difficult. It depends on what you're looking at, how you're looking at it. Uh, it means something different, doesn't it? Well, that's a good thing to keep in mind as we turn today to the book of Judges. And we're going to open the first two chapters of the book of Judges. And I, what I'm going to do is read selections. Uh, this is, these are from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Judges. I'll be reading the ESV. If you have your Bible, uh, you can uh, just read the whole thing. But uh, just in the interest of time, I'm going to be uh, doing passages. And so uh, I'm going to begin in chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'll be telling you as uh, when I skip to a new place. So this is in the beginning. Again, Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's read. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? 
The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriatharba. And they defeated Sheshai and Heman and Talmai. And so on it goes. Let's skip down to verse 17. More about Judah. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And then the uh, Hebron given to Caleb. Um, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin and Jerusalem to this day. And now if we go down to verses 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim with its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo with its villages. For the Canaanites persisting, persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Now, if we go down to chapter 2 of the book of Judges, beginning in verse 1. Let's read uh, through the first 16 verses here. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his 
own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnatheris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north to the mountain of Gash. And now, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done in Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of, the, of those who plundered them. And now going down to verse 20. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And now these are the nations, beginning in chapter 3, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. And slipping down to verse 4, we'll conclude with this. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And this is the word of the Lord. Right. Okay, so I'm expecting, if you were staying with me through that reading, that you're ending up confused uh, by what we just read. It's somewhat confusing because you have chapter one, in which seem, things seem really good, and then you have chapter two, in which things seem like not so good. So what are we looking at here? Are we looking at the young woman socialite, or are we looking at the grandmother? What is it here? If you go through chapter 1, as I say, it's pretty good, especially with Judah, seems to be doing what they should do. Verses 1 through 4. Verse 17, there's cooperation with Simeon. It's great. Verse 18, they have this success. And it all goes great to verse 19. And then, unfortunately, there are these chariots of iron that stop them dead in their tracks. Uh, and just so you know, when you read the the, the term chariots of iron or something like that in the book of Judges, uh, what you should think is technological game changer because that's what it was. You know, at certain times in history, some technology, some, some technological advancement 
uh, happens and it comes forth and it changes the game, right? It's a game changer. So if you had the, the invention of <clears throat> gunpowder, for example, really change things. If you had gunpowder and you were fighting someone who didn't have gunpowder, that was the end of it, right? You were defeated. It was unstoppable. Or you think of, the, uh, say, the atomic bomb that uh, at the end of World War II had just stopped Japan. It was like that was it. There was, there was no defense against this weapon. Right, so when you read Iron, Iron Chariots, you have these chariots with iron wheels. We're on the cusp of the Iron Age here. So what you're seeing is, in fact, a game changer. And when you had Iron Chariots against somebody who didn't, I mean, you were unstoppable. There was nothing you could do. If you had them, especially on the plains, which is why um, the Israelites did much better in the hill country. But if you had these chariots in the plain uh, topography, then you were unstoppable. That was the end. So it's kind of understandable that these, they, they, they couldn't drive out the inhabitants because they had chariots of iron. It was, it was the game changer. And as I'm reading about this, just, just to address some of you who might feel like, well, what is, what is all this talk about war? Why are they going to war? It seems unjust. Just so you realize, the reason that they were going to war is because of the violence in the land of Canaan and the, and the absolute desecration of the image of God that they found there. You know, in verse 7, you sort of get a hint of the brutality of the Canaanites. You know, they come to this one king and he says, 70 kings, 70 kings. He had cut off their thumbs and their toes so that they could come and grovel in his court. And that was a way of kind of humiliating the people that you conquered, the way of um, enacting revenge on them. So they were brought to the court. They would just be, just to show your power, they'd be kind of, you know, uh, hobbling around and, and uh, going down their hands and knees around the court just to get scraps from your table to live. And they used to be kings. So you, you see that was going on there. That's just the tip of the iceberg, friends, of, of the kind of violence that was going on in the land. So in this time, God said, okay, it's okay for you to do war uh, in a very circumscribed way. And for a, a very definite time period, that would end. This is not like Islamic Jihad, where, you know, you're in charge, you just go and conquer who you conquer. No, God said, there, this is very specific rules for the war in the Old Testament. And when it was over, and if, if they did not conduct it in the way that God said, then very quickly, he would turn the war on them, as happens even, even in our introduction here. So, just so you know, sometimes war is right, you have to appreciate that to understand the message of the book. And so in this case, there is war going on with these iron chariots. And we, we, uh, we are happy that there's victory in, verse one, in chapter 1. But then chapter 2, and chapter 2 really goes up to chapter 3, verse 6. There's thing, we get a different view. Things seem pretty bad, right? In verses 1 through 5, you didn't do what I said. Um, verse 2, you wouldn't trust me. Verses 6 through 10, they lacked leadership that was, would unite the tribes, which is a, an, an enormously important theme in the book of Judges. It tells us how important unity is to God. Um, and so what's going on there? You have to raise up judges. And actually, if you read chapter 1 separately from chapter 2, you, you can actually get two different introductions. Each of them functions as an introduction to what follows. And that's why it seems strange because you have the death of Joshua in both of them, right? Have, we started out with the death of Joshua in chapter one, you might have noticed. And then chapter two, all of a sudden, Joshua's dying again. So it seems like maybe a contradiction. What's going on here? 
in terms of these two things put together. Now, if you are a critical scholar, a non-believing scholar, you will come up with theories that, you know, this was actually put together much, long, much uh, beyond the, the time of the events, uh, much later. In the time of the exile, you got somebody, we'll give him a funny name. I don't know. We'll call him a redactor. And, you know, he just took different sources that he had of, of people. And we'll give those sources different letters like J, E, and P. And they were, they, were, they were vying for power with their different accounts. And no one really knew what was going on. So this redactor just slapdashed them all together and put out a book. And that's what we're getting in, in the Old Testament books. They're just a mess. Um, this is one of the more stupid theories that has... <laughs> characterized biblical studies in the Old Testament for decades now. And only now, thank God, is beginning to crumble and fall apart. But I'll tell you, in the meantime, it's powered a lot of dissertations uh, and a lot of books. And I use the word stupid because it was stupid. Uh, You just take the book of Judges that we're dealing with now. It's a literary masterpiece. The, the unity of, of the book could be demonstrated on many different levels. And it's, it's just the idea that this was slapdash and the author is just, you know, an unthinking redactor. It's just, it's, it's just ridiculous, actually, when you look at it, the book, from a literary standpoint. It's incredible literature. It's incredible in the account and what the author is trying to do. Let me just, let me tell you something. You want to get something out of this book? You want to get something out of the Bible? I guess this doesn't work anymore. If you want to get something out of this book, right? If you want to get, oh, this doesn't even do it, right? You want to get something out of this book, right? This is how we read now. This is how you're reading, right? You want to get something out of this book? (laughs) Come to it understanding, first of all, that God has spoken. Come to it understanding that God has given us a divine interpretation. He's given us truth. Come to it bowing before it, and you'll actually get much more of the author's intent. You'll actually get a message for your life. That's what we're going to do today. So what is going on here between uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, these two introductions, it seems? Well, if we're not distracted from the message of the text, what we see going on is the same events from two contrasting perspectives. It's not a contradictory uh, account, but there are two different perspectives. And you're used to this already from the movies you watch, right? You're watching a movie, it's going along, and then all of a sudden the action will stop and you'll get the same scene. Maybe it's an action shot, it's very exciting, and it shows you from a different perspective in slow motion, right? And you're so used to this now, you don't even notice that the narrative has been interrupted. You're actually happy. It's like, wow, yeah, show me that again. That was so cool. Now I could see the cars flipping over three times. It's like, wow, because I see it in slow motion. Well, what happened? The director just backed up and then he showed you the scene again. And then you got an, an, an interesting perspective. Sometimes this is whole endings, right? I'm thinking of, uh, how about that Batman movie? The Dark Man Rises. No, Dark Knight Rises, right? In that movie, The Dark Knight Rises, You've got, you've got a situation where you've got an ending and you, and you look at the meaning of that ending. It's like, well, this is the end of Batman, right? And then you get another ending. You get the same events. What's happened? The director backed up and he showed you the same events so that you look at it and you say, wow, this means something different. And he highlights different things so that you say, ah, that actually gives different meanings to the details in the first ending that I saw. And it gives it a very different meaning. 
Okay, well, this is a technique that's used not just by Christopher Nolan. This is used by biblical authors as well, where they show us the scene, then they back up and they show us something else to give us in a more meaning to the first, a different interpretation, maybe a deeper interpretation. It happens in the beginning of the Bible, right? You've, all, you've probably noticed you read Genesis 1 and you get the story of creation. What happens? The author then says, oh, hold on, let me back up because something important just really, really important happened right there. And that's the creation of humanity. So you come back in Genesis 2, and what do you get? You get a slow motion. You get a slow motion scene of the creation of humanity. He goes, let me draw this out for you. And it actually has implications for the meaning of what you just read in chapter 1. Happens at the end of the Bible, right? We could give many examples of the book of Revelation. It's like, let's go through this, what's going to happen in history. Mm, let's go through it again. No, let's go through it again. Actually, it's probably most of the book of Revelation. It's like, let's go through this again and again to see what's going on. And it actually happens in this book of Judges as well. You see, as you read on, if you read, it's a great book for you to read. Chapter 4, it gives you the narrative. Chapter 5 gives you a song interpreting the narrative. And it actually has implications for the way you read chapter (coughs) 4. Excuse me. So that's what's going on here. What you see here is a chapter 2 view of chapter 1. And you find out that things were not as good as they seemed. In chapter one, you had a lot of victories. You had a lot of things. Well, God is with them. It's great. But then you look at it from chapter two and you realize, wow, there are things that are going on here that are not so good and are actually in violation of the covenant that God had made with them. And so uh, you have, for example, the unity of the tribes, a big theme. So we say, wow, it's great that that, uh, Judah and Simeon are together. Well, where's Issachar? And what's going on with the rest of the 12 tribes? Are they really in unity? Uh, Verse 28, you're reading, you know, what goes on there. Were they really complete in doing what God had told them to do? Or were they just kind of compromised and say, well, we'll just use these folks for forced labor. Uh, Same with thing with the Benjaminites uh, and the Jebusites uh, going on there. Verse, uh, and you find out there are things here that are seeming like idolatry that you can see the seeds of, even in chapter one. So what chapter two is doing is giving us a lower level. It's kind of peeling back a layer. It's looking under the skin for us and showing the breach of covenant. You've got the secondary causes in full form in chapter one. And then what you've got is more of a theological approach. What's really going on, I would say, in their relationship with the Lord in chapter two. So, Why could the Israelites not drive out the inhabitants? Why could Judah and the rest of Israel not drive out the inhabitants of the plain? Well, in chapter 1, verse 19, we saw it was the iron chariots. And, you know, it was the game changer. Of course they couldn't do it against the iron chariots. But then you get to chapter 2, verse 2, and you say, well, it's really because you wouldn't trust me. So is it that they couldn't or that they wouldn't? Is it because that they, they just had nothing against the iron chariots? Or is that they couldn't really do it? They wouldn't really do it. They weren't trusting God. And the question of the actually the entire book is this. Which perspective, which level is going to govern the lives of the people of God? Is it going to be just the level of chapter one? Or is it going to be the chapter two view? Is it going to be that view about their relationship with God? What's going to govern the people To what will they give their attention? And on what will they rest their lives? And 
The reason why this is such an important book for us to read today is because God hasn't really changed in his methods. And he's actually, the Christian life, if you look at it, it really is God trying to take us from a chapter one perspective to a chapter two view in our lives. It's, it's, it's trying to help us see that there's a deeper level than the level that we get so caught up with and so frustrated with in our lives. And we look at what's going on in the coronavirus and we say, what is God doing? And as I've been, you know, saying at the number of points along the way, as we've been trying to teach here at, at Ironworks, you know, with the devotional at Luke 13 or the sermon on Mark 13 and other places that the pastors have been preaching, there is something that you need to pay paying attention to that goes beyond China, goes beyond your governor, goes beyond these things that might, might be the secondary causes, might be things you're looking at and maybe getting angry about, or even things that are going on in your own home that you're saying, oh, this is causing such trouble. Well, that's a secondary cause. The, the quarantine's a secondary cause. What's the real thing that God is doing with you? That's the way we got to look. Now, you might be here with me, I think, you're, if you're tracking with me, You'd be saying, yeah, I want that. I want to understand things from God's perspective. I want to look at it from the chapter two view. But how do I get there? What do we need to get to the chapter two view from just, you know, scrummaging around in chapter one, which, you know, they don't contradict each other, but, you know, one of them can encompass the other, but not vice versa. You see, the secular mindset would be very comfortable with the chapter one view, that is, all they see are the secondary cause. All they see are the iron chariots. And all they see is, you know, this virus that got out of control. And that's all there is to it. And you ask them, well, what is God doing in this situation? Is God happy about it? Is he God sad about it? Is he angry? How is God feeling about this? It was like, I don't know. You know, they just stand on the, on the layer of, uh, of the iron chariots there. And I, uh, the second view, chapter two view, can encompass chapter one, but not vice versa. And when a crisis hits, that's when you see if people are really at a loss. It's that people become sort of like Jack Black, you know, in Nacho Libre, right? He, he's, he's trying to get deeper with his nun friend, right? And he's, he's, he's trying to get really kind of to the, to the heart of things. And he says, you know, they're talking about his clothes. And he issues this line. He says, you know, beneath the clothes, we find the man. And beneath the man, we find his nucleus and you see he's casting about for what, what's deeper than the man it's like trying to go deep and deeper and then he realizes he doesn't have anything that's why the line is so funny um, but you know that's what the secular mindset is like you're just like Jack Black you can't go deeper if you don't have the chapter 2 perspective what do you need to get to the chapter 2 perspective well, three things three things first thing that you need to get there for us to move from the chapter one view to the chapter two view, first thing we need is God's revelation. We need, to, we need a word from the outside telling us how things are, telling us what the, ground, what, what the ground really looks like, especially in times when reality is challenged. We don't know what to believe or who to, who's saying what's true. We need the revelation. And that's why chapter two, verse one begins with the angel of the Lord. See, the angel of the Lord shows up. It's this mysterious character, the angel of the Lord. You see him in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 2. He actually shows up throughout the book. So chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 13, you have this mysterious character. The angel of the Lord shows up. And what does he do? Why does he show up? 
He shows up to give us the authoritative interpretation of what's going on. He shows up to tell them, look, this is the real deal. I know you're distracted by what's happening over here and the Philistines and all of these things. But here's what's really going on. And so this is a very important uh, figure in the book, even though he's very mysterious and ethereal, ephemeral, ephemeral, excuse me. Um, he gives us God's revelation and that's what they needed. That's what we need, friends. We need God's revelation to understand what's going in our lives, especially now. We don't need, you know, to take a course on it. We don't need the right news program. Uh, we don't need the, the voice of the experts or, or something else like that. What we need is God's revelation to bring us to the deeper level to understand what's going on. That's why we read the Bible. Because these days we don't have the angel of the Lord showing up uh, and, and suddenly telling us uh, the deal. But what God has done is given us a written revelation here in our phones to help us understand the real parameters of our lives as those who are walking with God. And, it, and it, it takes us to that deeper level. Without that, you know, we're like Jack Black saying, beneath the man is, uh, I don't know, his nucleus, right? That's the way the secular mindset of, by, by which we're influenced uh, too much. That's where it leads us. All we can see is the iron chariots. And in your crisis, all you can see are the antagonisms in your life. So all you can do is get angry at China, or all you can do is get angry at your governor. You know, and I'm not saying that these chapter one realities are not, are not there. You know, I'm not saying that the Chinese government did not uh, act poorly in this situation, because to all appearances, they did. You know, and I'm not saying that officials in, in charge are always making the best decisions for you. Maybe they are, maybe they are not. But if that's where you live, and that's all, that you have, and all that, all that you're left with is stewing, then, uh, friends, you're, you're just like Jack Black. You're, you're, you're at a loss. So you need the revelation to take you deeper. And you need a revelation to take you deeper in, into the home situations that are challenging you during the shutdown, during the quarantine as well. So that's the first thing, God's revelation, to peel back the layer to get lower. Second thing we need is to perceive God's providence. Is to understand that God is working through all things in his providential way. Okay? Because that's what's going on here as well. And just to give you a good example, actually I'll take this, I'll actually go with the same example that is in the text. What we see in the book of Judges is, is God's passion for his people to be unified. We see that again and again. And we see it right here in this opening as well. You know, it was great that Judah was cooperating with Simeon. But then we, we, see, we see Frayne. We see other ways in which we don't see cooperation. What's going on here? And this is something that's very important to God. Very important. So, the cooperation of the tribes. God wants to know when Judah is cooperating with Simeon. Is he doing it because it's smart militarily? Or is he doing it as part of the covenant because he knows, because they know, that God wants to unify his people, make them one nation under God? And that is so important to him. So there's a test. And uh, chapter 2 starts getting into that, you know, these things that are happening are really a test for God to see 
where his people are, they're not, they're not uh, chance events. They're not every, every enemy, every annoyance, every antagonism in their life is, pr- is properly placed for God to say, where are you? Where are you really in regard to me, in regard to our covenant? So when you come across the reality, maybe in your own family, maybe in your own church, maybe in your own home group, your own small group, you ha- you're suddenly confronted by people who have different opinions about the lockdown than you do. And there are people who, who just believe very different things. And let me just tell you, I just, because I happen to know, being a pastor here, that in Ironworks Church, there are op- uh, directly opposite views about what should be happening now in regard to the lockdown. There are people who believe that, you know, this was all overblown. And this is something that, you know, maybe even was a mistake from the beginning. This shut down and people, our livelihoods are being destroyed and we should be coming out of this as quickly, as safely as possible. There are people on that. So there are also people in Ironworks Church, in your church, who believe this is a, this is a terrible danger that we're dealing with, a, a danger to public health. And we need to be absolutely careful about how we come out of this. And maybe we need to go in a little bit longer in quarantine. You know, there are people who believe a lot, both of these things in your church, perhaps in your home group, maybe and everything in between. Now, are you, if you get annoyed by that, you're just like, man, if you're just going to dismiss these other people as, you know, deplorables or as elites, you know, you're just going along with the country in what they're doing. But what you're not seeing is God's providence. See, God sets people in churches on purpose. Do you know that you're set in a, in a church for God's specific reason? You're actually there to talk to each other. I don't know if you realize that, but you're in the church to talk to each other, to listen respectfully to each other, to try to understand the perspective of one who also uh, has Christ. You say, well, I don't, I don't want to be like that. I want to be with people who agree with me. I like to be people with, I'm comfortable with. You know, I want to be, I want to be with people with whom I have something in common. Well, let me tell you something. You do have something in common. Jesus Christ is whom you have in common. That is the basis of your unity. And that should be why you're having a church. But why do you have a church? Why are you together as a church? Are you together as a church because you're in the same demographic? Are you together in church because of the same life experience? Because you have the same politics? Because you're in the same socioeconomic level? Same time of life? Or are you in a church together because you all share being rescued by Jesus Christ? Do you understand that deeper, that this is the deepest reality of your life? And because of that, you are together with these people. And that makes all the other things, not that they're unimportant, but they're, they're pretty pale in comparison. And guess what? God wants to know that. God wants to know that about the churches in America right now. God wants to know that about Ironworks Church. Why are you together? Like, why is Judah really cooperating with Simeon? And in times of crisis, friends, that's when the superficiality of the church is exposed. Or not. Let's hope not. What does that mean for you? That means if you're going to recognize this 
God's, God's providence acting in your situation right now. You know that God actually has these people in your life for a reason. To respectfully listen to them. To instead find unity in Christ rather than these other issues. Are you able to do that? That's God's test here. That's chapter two view thinking. Okay? And you know, we could multiply different examples from this. God may be testing your marriage right now in quarantine. And you want to blame the virus, but you're, you're just, you're, you're hanging out in chapter one. He wants to bring you to chapter two so that you realize God is actually, yeah, he wants to test you. He wants you to see what's going on with your marriage. Not so that, uh, you know, you could come into judgment so you could get healed. If there's things that you need to address, if there are ways in which you need to go deeper, he definitely wants to deepen your relationship. So this is the thing to do. And, you know, if you have other things you want to talk about in regard to this, we're going to have this Q&A after the service. And it's a place to come ask questions about what I'm talking about or actually ask any questions or even express views, you know, that push back against this, which you're, you're welcome to do as well. We welcome that in our Q&A. And we're going to put up the link that you can go to at the end of the service as well. We welcome all of you to come and just talk about these things. These are important. It's important for us to understand what it is that's going on, how to look at it as believers walking with Christ. So we uh, look out for that link. But before we close, I want to I get to the third reason that the third way, excuse me, that God brings people from the chapter one view to the chapter two view, ways that he brings people to see, okay, this is the real deal. This is with whom I have to deal right now in my relationship with the Lord, really bring people to see uh, what God is doing with them. And that is through covenant, through making covenant with people. The way that he brings people to that deeper reality is by entering into a covenant in which he saves them. And the covenant's uh, really apparent in this book here, uh, where you know, we, we even read about it. That's why the angel of the Lord brings up the covenant when he talks to them, that they need to uh, cry out to the Lord uh, for their rescue, and he raises up judges for them, which is uh, appropriate in their covenant. Uh, our covenant these days is much simpler, actually. And it also, though, involves rescue, and that is the rescue of Jesus Christ. Our covenant and living in our covenant means doing the things that I've just talked about, respecting his revelation, understanding his providence, but mainly casting ourselves on God. And when we live in that covenant, when we live in that chapter two view, it changes even the circumstances of chapter one. Uh, you know, you'll notice that when the angel of the Lord gives the revelation uh, to the people in chapter two of the book of Judges, what, what's their response they start crying out to them. They weep, right? They're like, you're right. We're not, our eyes have not been on the covenant. And uh, they repent. And it, it does amazing things for them. You will see what they saw, which is extraordinary uh, power of God operating on their behalf as they live in the covenant. And so with us, as we cast ourselves upon Christ, we can see him work in these situations uh, for us as well. You know, uh, it's just like Jesus said, if you abide in me, that is recognize the providence in your life and my words abide in you, that is respect the revelation. 
then ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. That's the way that Jesus put it. Because as we live in, in Christ's covenant, as we recognize and discern God's providence in the things that are happening, as we respect God's revelation, and as we enjoy the covenant that he's given us in Christ, then we're living in a chapter two view and things change for us. So let's do that, friends, uh, as we're, we're going to be uh, singing a song now. We're going to be um, having a, a time of, of song and prayer before we close the service. But let us, let us consider these things and come with me now. Let us live not in the chapter one view, but let us come in and live in the chapter two view. Amen. <laughs>